0: Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John
1: and I'm Robin
0: and together we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together.
1: We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing, but we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding and since you're here we hope that you want the same thing so we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff welcome to our fireside
0: Late Night Smooth Jazz Fireside version 3 or whatever. Yeah. I don't know which one, which one we're on. How are you doing? How are things?
1: Things are good. Things are tired. Yeah. I'm tired. Yeah. But that's okay. How are you doing? Also equally as tired as evidenced by the fact that we're recording this at uh, 11 o'clock your time on the day it was supposed to come out.
0: Correct. This will be a special late edition of Fireside Breakdowns. <laughs> The one of hopefully a few that all will, will be published a day or two late. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping I can push this out on Tuesday. We'll find out. But uh, you know, pretty good. Crashed the motorcycle over the weekend. As yeah, we discussed, yeah. Hence the late episode. Managed to get away with nothing more than a little oh a little road rash there. That's
1: was a lot so smaller bad? than I anticipated.
0: Yeah, it wasn't bad at all. That's it great. Was, uh, like I think I think we estimated about like an 80 mile an hour uh, crash, but solid, it, was, solid. it was, it was the good kind. If there is such a thing yeah. where it's a, it's a low side. So I just basically slid out and, uh, caught, caught the grass at the edge of the track and then rolled. There's a video. I, I roll a lot in it. Um, I'm trying to get a hold of it. Hopefully I get it soon. Yeah. Maybe it'll be a, a Patreon bonus video. If you, want <laughs> to, if you, for patrons only, you can yes. see me rolling like a rag doll. Um, not traumatizing at all, I swear. Yeah,
1: totally. Uh, How's the bike? Is it was it rideable on Sunday?
0: Uh, yeah, I had to. So many, many thanks to uh, my wife and our good friend Shiloh and uh, several people at the track. Less um, for lending us tools and parts and expertise um, as we got things put back together. And uh, yeah, I was able to go back out Sunday morning and ride, and it was a little shaky. wasn't wasn't my best sessions, but I was still back out there. So yeah, that's great. Hopefully, bounce back from that and be back up to pace uh, next time.
1: Awesome. Um,
0: yeah. So that's the the long winded explanation of why this one's a, <laughs> a little late because our plans did get derailed a bit. Yeah, um,
1: just a lot. It's good.
0: So. Yeah. So thanks for tuning in to our last episode, the ultimate one. We swear for sure this time until, and, and yeah. until or unless you ask us to cover more of this um, in our series, An Unholy Convergence, uh, where we're trying to answer a listener's question about how so many evangelical Christians became enamored and entangled with Donald Trump and how that connection might have noticeably changed their attitudes and behaviors on other current events issues like social justice and immigration and COVID. What we've discovered so far in the nearly 15,000 words of writing and probably triple that amount of research that we've done is that this wasn't a case of one charismatic man, pun intended, charming a group of Americans and turning them into his own personal militia. This convergence was a long time coming and the product of so many factors, Um, like the long-standing, often subconscious, perceptions that America was formed and founded by white Christians and that those cultures have a custodial claim to the country, or the loss of political and economic status experienced by the most dominant demographic groups inside the evangelical movement, There's also the 45 years of work to enmesh Christian principles with conservative politics and an increasingly multi-ethnic and secular cultural progression on top of all of that.
1: Our Our research has shown us that Trump didn't turn evangelicals into white Christian nationalists with his rhetoric or his platform. That undercurrent was already present inside the movement. What he did was call out the themes that spoke to the fears and insecurities that led people to those ideologies in the first place. And then they rose up in strong response to him. So this week, we're going to look at how the Trump administration continued the work that his campaign began, creating loyalty with evangelical voters by implementing white and Christian nationalist policies. And then we'll finish with that quick examination of whether evangelicals' positions on some key social issues changed during the Trump administration, or if the social climate during those four years was just bringing those long-held beliefs to the forefront. So I think we shall start by looking at where white nationalist or race-focused policies showed up during the Trump administration.
0: Right. So, and I... The reason we're starting here is because we have this, this particular series have seen us doing some things that we don't normally do here on Fireside, or at least I feel like we don't normally do, um, which is make these sort of naked assertions without much consideration for nuance, um, which most notably, we've been pretty blunt with claims that white nationalism was a focal point of the Trump administration. Now, if you've ever talked about trump in public in any sort of way in a mixed group mixed company um the claim that trump is racist begins to get thrown out pretty quickly at which point the conversation is basically over we don't want to fall into that trap of of kind of just like throwing out that like trump is racist and then people shut off because that's that's not productive and Mm -hmm. so let's do some level setting really quick which is a lie because nothing we do on the show is quick. So let's leave it at, let's do some level setting. Um, Why do we feel relatively comfortable in asserting that white nationalism was a feature of the Trump administration? We'll focus on two broad categories to explore this claim. The the things that Trump and his supporters said and the things that his administration did.
1: So first and foremost, primarily at the front, the man himself gave a full-throated endorsement of nationalism and exhorted others to claim and use that phrase. So let's revisit what Trump said at a campaign rally. He said, a globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It's sort of become old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say really... We're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. Nationalist with a capital N. Nothing wrong. Use that word. Use that word. So I'm not really sure that we need to drive the point about nationalism itself home (laughs) any further. Uh, Yeah, you kind of did
0: that one for us.
1: Yeah. If an unforced confession coupled with fully embracing the term doesn't really convince you that Trump himself chose a nationalist viewpoint, um, I don't know what will, but I think we can also say uh, that his words and his actions favored white populations in how they caused certain racist populations to react. Rhetoric like embracing nationalism is what excited the alt-right that thronged to support him. It's what led to Breitbart, the website, proclaiming itself as the platform for the alt-right, which was run by Trump's campaign CEO, Steve Bannon, uh, to be one of the most influential websites on the right. At its height in 2016 and 2017, Breitbart, a site that featured an entire black crime section, was frequently second only to Fox News in terms of web traffic.
0: I mean clearly black crime is a totally legitimate
1: it's i'm sure it is
0: section thing i yeah. mean yeah they probably also had a white crime section right
1: yeah no i'm they right. i'm sure and like asian crime of
0: course asian crime also they they didn't have an, they didn't have any of these things no i'm getting just a, literally black crime just just black crime mm-hmm. because there's nothing better than taking a complex and nuanced social issue and boiling it down to black people are violent. Love that one. Yeah. Classic. Classic.
1: Classic.
0: Um, so, yeah, Trump, <laughs> Trump and his eventual administration slowly increased the explicit nature of their appeals to white nationalism over time, uh, kind of like a frog in a pot of boiling water, if you've <laughs> ever heard that metaphor. Oh, yeah. You know? Um, narratives of others coming into this country to live off of the hard work of, quote, "real Americans through social programs and the taxpayers' money, um, narratives of rapists coming for our women and children, of, of murderers flooding across the border to raise our shining city on a hill. These all resonated with the unease that many middle-class Americans living paycheck to paycheck felt. And more importantly, it gave those Americans a target. And this was by design. We've talked about it on this show a million times, we'll talk about it a million more, because it is critical for interpreting what is happening not only in this context, but just in America and in the world at large. It's this concept of othering, also known as dehumanization. It's a, it's a trick that allows people to justify behavior that would otherwise be considered inexcusable. When you hear Trump and his supporters say things like, when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best, they're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're bringing rapists, and some, I assume, are very good people. Or are good people not very good? <laughs> yeah, you don't need a superlative on this. The one. very good people was reserved for the the white power white supremacists <laughs> in the yeah uh, Richmond protest uh, counter protests? whatever the murder yeah uh, anyway these claims they're obviously demonstrably factually wrong we have data that that shows us these, these claims are wrong. We have talked about them before. Um, but those constant accusations, whether or not they're, they're true or not, what they do is erode the compassion we have for the targets of, of those insults of those accusations, because each assertion strips them of a little of their humanity Former Trump advisor Corey Lewandowski recognized this and described it prior to the 2018 midterms, saying, if you want to get people motivated, you've got to give them a reason to vote. Saying, build the wall and stop illegals from coming in and killing American citizens gives them an important issue, which then allows you to motivate them, and then they will vote. Exactly. I added that last little part.
1: You did. Republican representative Matt Gates from Florida also invoked this specter Ooh. of the yeah, dangerous illegal. Sorry. I used to have like a really solid list of of my favorite and least favorite politicians and it's just getting all jumbled up because I just, I mean, I hate them all right now.
0: It's a race to the bottom. It really It is, really is. It feels like.
1: Yeah. Shor- yeah. Uh, shortly after the 2018 shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, um, Parents of the victims were pushing for a bill that would mandate background checks for gun purchases. And instead of, you know, addressing those parents' concerns, Gates told them, I hope we don't forget the pain and anguish and sense of loss felt by those all over the country who have been victims of violence at the hands of illegal aliens. The bill in question, whatever it was called, would not have stopped the circumstances I raised, but a wall, a barrier on the southern border may have. And if you look at the border and you look at the hundreds of thousands of people that are invading or at least trying to invade our country, you would know that we need a wall and we're building it.
0: What? I'm sorry. Every time I read that, I'm like, how could you be so callous? Like there's a time and a place to pivot and talking to the parents of murdered children is not that time. Yeah, I And know. you'd think that, that somebody, even somebody with as few apparent functional brain cells as Matt Gates would know, mm-hmm. maybe we don't talk about a completely unrelated issue. When we're trying to 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 comfort yeah. these parents, my constituents, the people that I have right. campaigned to represent and protect their interest in politics, what the hell? Yeah. I'm, it's just, I mean, it pisses me off. But this
1: is the same genius that brought us the 3am tweet uh, that posited that the women protesting um, their loss of abortion rights are probably just uh, cat ladies who can't get a date on Grindr. I I can't I can't with Gates. I
0: can't with Gates. I know I, I, there are many reasons that I can't with Gates, and
1: yeah. But this raises the yep. point that immigrants are an easy target, even when the issue is gun control. They pivot, right? Immigrants are so easy because we know high immigration fosters anxieties for traditional values and ethnicities. Republican Representative Steve King made it very clear the type of mentality that the Republican Party under Trump was targeting when he said that we cannot restore our civilization with someone else's babies, right? The goal is to get back to the true America, and we can't do that with immigrant babies. So we got to keep them out.
0: And this is like, these are particularly concerning quotes in light of the fact that, uh, we had this, another shooting, yes. um, at, uh, in Buffalo, a couple, uh, a few days ago. And the shooter had a over 100 page manifesto, like 109 pages and just a manifesto about why he did this. And the, the crux of his, uh, grievance that he felt he needed to murder people about was that, uh, was was this theory called the the replacement theory the great white replacement um if you've watched a certain tucker carlson mm-hmm. on fox news you've probably heard him literally talk about it yeah. literally posit it on national cable news like it was fact and it's not it's a conspiracy theory and it's a racist one at that 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 white people are intentionally being replaced by uh, minorities people of colors the jews pick your target right and it, mm.
1: yeah we we've talked about it in i think a few different episodes in the debate takes boogaloo boys and in our conspiracy theories episodes um, i think yeah if you want more details about this hogwash
0: yeah but point of it being that these are these are talking points that are echoed by not just the politicians, but by the entire network that supports the politicians. Mm -hmm. Now, you might say, you might say, okay, but what about the anti-racist stuff that Trump said, right? Does he not also get some credit for that? And you'd be right to bring up the point. After all, following a racially racially motivated mass shooting in El Paso, perpetrated by a shooter whose manifesto mirrored some of Trump's rhetoric on Latinx immigration— Scary echoes, right? Mm-hmm. Trump said, most awkward sentence in the world, I, but he said this, in one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. Which is, which is right. This is a correct statement that I have no problem agreeing with. Yeah. And we can consider it. But notice how it sounds nothing like Trump That's because it was a prepared remark written by a speechwriter. And it is different than the seemingly candid thoughts that he expresses when he's out on the campaign trail. Right. So we do need to consider those things as well.
1: Yeah. And I want to jump in here because um, this feels like it reflects something that I know that I had to deal directly with during the 2016 and 2020 campaigns. And that is that uh, it's a reminder that individual racism isn't the only kind of racism that is at play in America. The same person can say with their mind and believe with their heart that people of all colors are valuable, but still work to uphold policies and systems that harm people of color. And I think that that is a place that many people who interact with Trump supporters find themselves having to negotiate, right? I genuinely believe that my, you know, great aunt Tilly loves people of all color but she doesn't want Mexicans coming into America and that's really hard to um that's really hard to process those two the difference between those two things so just a reminder yeah. that that individual racism direct i believe that this race is better than that race is is not the only kind of racism that's at play in these conversations
0: yeah great point to highlight something that we have We've tried to untangle in the past the difference between systemic racism, a thing that is a loaded phrase that a lot of people yep. don't think exists, and and this personal racism, um, not the same thing. So, these words, those phrases, and why and and systemic racism being different than personal racism is why talk is cheap yeah. in this particular arena. So let's take a look at the second category and. Let's look at some of the things that the Trump administration actually did, their actions. For example, immigration. Trump's immigration policy has frequently been a prime example of this problem. You may remember Trump infamously saying that he'd like the US to have fewer immigrants from, quote, shithole countries, <laughs> God, which is the fucking word. <laughs> Isn't it, it's just an offensive – and when he said that, people were like, well, I mean, but, like, they are shithole countries. Like, you can't deny that these some of these places are shitholes. And I was like, well, I don't know. I've never been there. And also what makes them a shithole country? Because, like, if it's poverty, then, like, half of America is a shithole country. So Right. <laughs> you know, like, what is your standard for this? Uh, but, you know, we kind of all knew what their standard was. Exactly. Um, yeah and that was the point. so it, Trump when he said that he was very specifically referring to African and Cari- uh, Caribbean Caribbean uh, countries post several natural disasters and events uh, that caused immigration conversations. instead, Trump said that he wanted immigrants from majority white Norway. He like floated Norway. why can't we get more people from Norway? So this desire for more more white immigrants and fewer objectionable ones, shall we say, was reflected in the barriers to immigration that his administration erected, both physically and metaphorically, for citizens from countries with majority non-white populations. Of course, these policies were accompanied by the previously discussed othering, such as labeling them some of the most vicious and dangerous people on earth, right? Yeah. What? What? No objective measure of that. But we're just going to throw it out there and people are just going to buy it because emotions, right? So over the course of his presidency, Trump placed restrictions on immigration from Iran, Libya, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, Venezuela, Vietnam, China, Mexico, and both North and South Korea for whatever reason. During the first two years of his presidency, immigration from China fell about 21%. From 2018 to 2020, the United States went from taking in 110,000 Syrian refugees annually to just 18,000. Further restrictions were placed on immigrants from Myanmar, Eritrea, Kyrgyzstan, Nigeria, Sudan, and Tanzania. Or Tanzania, which is how I've always wanted to say it, and I, that I is know it's wrong. How
1: but... a lot of African people that I know say it.
0: Really, I've always or I've, Tanzania. I've always
1: heard... Really, yeah.
0: Well, I pronounced Tunisia, Tunisia, for the longest time, so I really don't know which one is right. Um, but eighty percent of the people impacted by. Those restrictions on those specific countries, um, they're from African nations, so like heavy bias towards Mm -hmm. specific population groups. In June 2020, Trump enacted another temporary ban, this one targeting green cards and suspending several work visas that are often used by immigrants of color. Most notably, these visas were disproportionately used by immigrants from India. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Now, one may be tempted to think that perhaps the Trump administration was just generally anti-immigrant, but there was a notable and overt pattern in these policies. They didn't just exclude people of color, they actively deemed white immigrants the right type of immigrants. Amid the decline in immigration caused by these targeted policies, Trump reportedly hoped to find ways to fast-track immigration from Europe with former U.S. ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, assigned in 2018 to work on a plan to enable this fast track alongside Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Then there was the change in the so-called public charge rule. Since 1882, the U.S. has been able to reject prospective immigrants who are likely to become a public charge, meaning that they're likely to become dependent on the government for support. But this law wasn't enforced very often post-World War II at all. But then in August 2019, the Department of Homeland Security used the public charge rule to establish a test to determine whether an immigrant applying to enter the United States, extend their visa, or convert their temporary immigration status into a green card was likely to end up relying on public benefits in the future. With the new convoluted 217-page regulation, The Trump administration defined public charge much more broadly, giving immigration officials at U.S. US Citizenship and Immigration Services and U.S. Customs and Border Protection a laundry list of 20 factors to consider. Individual immigration officials were given greater latitude to implement that however they saw fit, broadening their ability to use their discretion to turn away those who are likely to become a public charge. These factors included the use of certain public benefits programs like food stamps, Section 8 housing vouchers, and Medicaid, and English language proficiency classes. Ultimately, it injected a massive amount of uncertainty into the green card process, directly impacting and changing who is allowed to enter and remain in the United States as a lawful permanent resident.
0: When the rule was enacted... The Los Angeles Times reported some immigrants with children enrolled in special education programs withdrew them from school. Refugees and asylum seekers dropped out of food assistance programs. Immigrants began avoiding applying for asylum and citizenship, even though the final version of this rule didn't affect either process. It had a massive chilling effect on overall immigrant use of programs, whether or not the given program was considered in the new rule to be a strike against them or not. Many eligible, primarily permanent residents with green cards unenrolled from programs they were qualified to use under the law rather than take the chance that using that program would lead to their deportation. In the general American population, this rule effectively cast immigrants as abusing public benefits. But because this is fireside mm-hmm. and because I get to write for the show, we are going to do a teensy bit of fact checking. Yes. Bottom line, according to the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian institution, mm-hmm. it's not a liberal one, <laughs> immigrants are less likely to use welfare. When immigrants do use these programs, they generally use less, measured by dollar value, than native-born Americans. In 2016, the average value of public benefits used by a single immigrant was $3,718, compared to native-born Americans' use of $6,081. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And
0: This is essentially because while non-citizens were slightly more likely to get cash assistance or SNAP uh, and Medicaid, they were far less likely to use Medicare and Social Security. As Aaron Quinn, a senior staff attorney at the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, put it, the rhetoric around the use of public benefits programs is largely smoke and mirrors. It's feeding a rhetoric that immigrants are draining our public services when in fact these immigrants don't even have access to those services and also galvanizing fear in immigrant communities.
1: Yeah, and it's really interesting to look at that list because – Um, Programs like cash assistance and SNAP and even Medicaid are uh, what are generally considered to be short-term use programs. There are very, very small amounts of people who are on those programs long-term. And generally, when they are, it's in conjunction with something like Social Security, disability insurance, um, and Medicare. They're more likely to be senior citizens or permanently disabled Whereas these other programs are fully intended to be short-term use. So in the long term then also these immigrants are less likely to be using public benefits.
0: Yeah. And like a lot of public like it it always grinds my gears just a little bit whenever I hear these claims about illegals quote unquote, mm-hmm. accessing public benefits and, and taking, you know, our taxpayer dollars to stay at home and not work and whatever. Um, because like for a lot of these, you need a social security number just yeah. to qualify for the program. Yeah. If you are a unregistered immigrant in America, if you did not fill out the paperwork, if you don't have a green card, you don't have a social security number. Mm-mm. You can't get social security. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the whole point of the system. <laughs>
1: I mean it is it is hard enough for um, for native born americans who have all of their ducks in a line to get these programs right who have every piece of paper that they ever could possibly need it is hard enough for them to get these these benefits let alone someone who is undocumented and um, may have a barrier to speaking the english language like the whole narrative just doesn't line up that duck don't hunt, or that dog don't hunt if you know okay. what I mean, that
0: duck don't hunt. That either. duck don't hunt.
1: Ha- no, the duck hunts. It's a hunting duck. Oh,
0: the duck. Hunts. Yeah, no, but the, oh.
1: like the, it just doesn't make sense as a story.
0: Yeah, that's your. It's right. It's a narrative that doesn't. It it does not flow, but it doesn't need to. No. because we have that cognitive dissonance thing. Yeah. That plays in, yeah. Ah, and yeah, story for another time.
1: Right. Well, I mean, it's a story we've told so many times.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Story for all the times.
1: <laughs> every of the times. Uh, whenever you have a complicated conversation, look for cognitive dissonance. I promise you, it, it exists. It's there. Uh, okay, so the evidence shows that we saw both white nationalist rhetoric and policy from the Trump administration once he took office. Uh, but another key angle to this unholy triangle, if you will, is the brand of Christian nationalism that's particularly popu- popular with evangelical voters. Um, it's, it's a very specific kind of Christian nationalism. To recap, it starts with the idea that American Christians have a sort of custodial relationship with the country. There's this perception that the U.S. was built on Christian ideals, but has strayed from them, and that it's their responsibility, evangelicals' responsibility, to turn it back toward God in an effort to save the country from the divine consequences of its sinfulness. Um, That naturally means not only working to proselytize their neighbors, but also to bring the laws that govern the United States into closer alignment with biblical principles. And then layered on top of that is their particular concept of religious freedom. What they view as freedom of religion extends beyond their right to choose their own faith or attend church, but also includes a right to engage in behaviors that exclude or potentially harm others in the name of their Christian practice. Trump pandered to these ideals on the campaign trail, helping him win the evangelical vote. And then these concepts are what we saw reflected in his administration's policies and trends in state policy even during his presidency.
0: Yeah, so let's start with this idea of bringing law into alignment with conservative Christian morality. In a 2019 speech given at Notre Dame, Attorney General William Barr highlighted this perspective perfectly. He said, In short, in the framers' view, free government was only suitable and sustainable for a religious people, a people who recognized that there was a transcendent moral order antecedent to both the state and man-made law and who had the discipline to control themselves according to those enduring principles <laughs> i'm trying so hard not to interject a whole lot Dude, at the end of that one but let's just say i
1: found some there's gems a,
0: there's a lot of research there's a lot of a lot of practitioners a lot of a lot of, Historians that strongly disagree with that particular Mm -hmm. perspective. Anyway, moving on. For modern-day Christian nationalists, this perspective generally means restricting access to abortion and other family planning methods, uh, restricting or removing protections for LGBTQ plus persons, and even codifying into law acknowledgement of the Christian founding of the country. And those are precisely the types of legal endeavors the Trump administration took on. We saw the exclusion of family planning clinics that provide information on abortion from all Title X funding, which caused major resource organizations like Planned Parenthood to withdraw from the program and limited millions of women's access to wellness exams, contraceptions, testing, and treatments for STDs and even cancer screenings. And we saw waves of tighter and tighter abortion legislation in individual states in the aftermath of that decision, ultimately leading to where we are today. Mm-hmm which I'm not going to jump the gun. We're still going to have to talk about that at some point. But the reason, the absolute yeah. 100% reason that we're seeing the decision that's coming out of the Supreme Court today is because of, well, really dozens of years of effort, but especially the last six years or so of effort yeah. on behalf of these Christian nationalists and the, the conservative party that uh, has been courting them aggressively.
1: Yes, We saw that efforts to define, uh, efforts to define, legally define sex discrimination as relevant only to those who claim that their rights are violated on the basis of their assigned sex, male or female, um, and and threatened non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ Americans that had been established by the Obama administration, Trump rescinded Obama's guidance for caring for transgender students in schools. Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued a memo stating that the DOJ would no longer argue in court that sex discrimination applied to issues of gender identity or sexual orientation, or that transgender people are federally protected from employment discrimination. President Trump announced on Twitter that transgender people would not be accepted or allowed in the United States military. And the administration even sought to roll back protections for LGBTQ plus people laid out in the Affordable Care Act.
0: And then there's the push to pass laws requiring that the words in God we trust be included on license plates and in public schools. And yeah, we know it's the nation's motto. It's actually not the phrase that gives us pause here. It's the fact that these specific laws are part of an organized movement toward explicitly Christian nationalist policy. It sounds like something out of a conspiracy theory, we know, so feel free to check our sources, but there are specific lobbying organizations that have come together to create a five-category plan involving basically like a sort of copy-and-paste legislation process which leads to a lot of laws that look almost exactly the same Mm -hmm. and function in almost exactly the same way because they went back to the same source, (laughs) um, to push explicitly Christian nationalist policy agendas. There is no question that the alignment between conservative politic and Christian ideals was on full display in the proactive legislative efforts being made under Trump.
1: And then if that effort to bring the law into alignment with conservative Christian values is one side of the coin, then creating exceptions for Christian practice in the law in the name of religious freedom is the other. There's this perception among conservative Christians that they as a whole are a highly persecuted group in the United States, that their rights and beliefs are under constant attack, and that at any any moment their right to practice their faith could be stripped away from them. Uh, This was one of the strong narratives during Trump's campaign and then in his administration's priorities and actions. Attorney General Sessions made mistreatment of religious groups an area of specific focus for the Justice Department, even giving speeches that made direct reference to Christian nationalist concepts and then heralded Trump as their defender. In a speech that he gave at the Department of Justice's Religious Liberty Summit in 2018, (laughs) Sessions said,
0: let us be frank. A dangerous movement, undetected by many, is now challenging and eroding our great tradition of religious freedom. There can be no doubt, this is no little matter. It must be confronted and defeated. This election, and much that has flowed from it, gives us a rare opportunity to arrest these trends such a reversal will not just be done with electoral victories, but by intellectual victories. We have gotten to the point where courts have held that morality cannot be a basis for law, where ministers are fearful to affirm, as they understand it, holy writ from the pulpit, and where one group can actively target religious groups by labeling them a hate group on the basis of their sincerely held religious Beliefs. This president and this Department of Justice are determined to protect and even advance this magnificent heritage. Mm, the irony, the irony. It's like, it's like he doesn't, I know they don't, I know they don't get the irony, but like, is is not that the exact sort of description of what has been happening to Muslim Americans since September 11th? Mm-hmm. That their entire religion and anybody who practices it, and the and the nations where it is the predominant religion, are being labeled as terrorists, mm-hmm. which is just another word for a hate group. Like, right? Is that not exactly point for point what is happening to them? But their religious freedom doesn't apply. It's. Mm. Hmm.
1: It is because it is because Christian religious freedom is inherent in the nature of the United States. That's like, that is the whole, uh, I, mm-hmm. yeah. so then, yeah, exactly. Then he went on to list recent cases in which freedom of religion had been on trial. Nuns forced to provide insurance policies that cover contraception. Bakers sued for refusing to provide custom cakes for those whose lifestyles they disagree with. Americans from a wide variety of backgrounds are concerned about what this changing cultural climate means for the future of religious liberty in this country he said, and President Trump has heard this concern. Under Sessions and Trump, the DOJ provided a list of 20 guiding principles for all executive branch agencies to ensure that they did not violate religious liberty protections. They forcefully pursued litigation on behalf of religious groups and created a religious liberty task force so that, quote, our employees know their duties to accommodate people of faith. The Office of Conscience and Religious Freedom was established by the Trump administration within the Department of Health and Human Services, and works. It still in-
0: sounds like I know. It still sounds like it comes right out of 1984. It still sounds like. Or it. They,
1: I mean, there was that one dude who's angling at Missouri politics who said, "We won't stop until Missouri is a handmaid's tale," and it terrifies me. But that's what we're.
0: Like they actually, he's actually striving for that. Uh huh. And- uh
1: huh but and that's like that's what all of this calls to mind right this this idea of
0: anyway does he does he not get that that was a bad that was a dystopia like that's the whole point of a handmaid's tale and like the people who were forcing people to live like that were the bad guys throughout the whole series like yeah, that was i, know, the, I know, like the, the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are we the bad guys hans oh yeah oh my god Sorry. No,
1: you're. Yeah. So the Office of Conscience and Religious Freedom was established by the Trump administration within the Department of Health and Human Services and worked to maintain the right of healthcare providers to refuse treatment to certain patients on religious grounds, even within HHS funded programs and facilities. And what that meant was that any healthcare provider, any, could refuse to provide a patient with contraception or treatment for a sexually transmitted disease or gender-affirming health care, treatment for alcohol-related conditions, drug-related care, or even mental health services if they believed that treating that patient would violate their religious beliefs. This is a great place for us to jump in and say, we're talking about a lot of legislation, um, but such is the nature of legislation that a lot of these, um, these things that were handed down by executive order Or initiatives of the Department of Justice, Um, some of them are in limbo, some of them have been completely reversed, some of them still stand but aren't enforced. Uh, So keep in mind that we're talking about what was going on at that particular time when we're talking about legislation.
0: Yeah. And a lot of, hmm, we're going to see this come into play whenever Roe versus Wade, that decision comes down. But if Roe is reversed then we're going to see a lot of these laws that were passed and then not enforced but never taken off the books, they're going to come back to life. Mm-hmm. So, And as soon as Roe is stricken down, they will start being enforced again. So even though these laws might not be uh, in, in enforced now or they might be in limbo or something, it doesn't mean that's going to always be the case. Right. And there is a certain tactic, a certain mentality that – tries to get as many of these laws on the book as possible with as much overlapping coverage as possible so that if any part of the dam breaks, mm-hmm. the intent of all of those laws goes into effect, even if not all of the laws themselves goes to go into effect, right? So there's something to be said for this sort of shotgun blast effect, trying to get these things through, even if they're not currently active. Yeah. This desire to accommodate religious preference even extended to more specific policy areas. In early 2017, before President Trump took office, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services implemented regulations that required states to ensure that agencies receiving federal funds do not deny services to anyone on the basis of religion. But the Trump administration didn't fully enforce those regulations, multiple states applied for and received waivers allowing faith-based adoption agencies to knowingly violate non-discrimination provisions on the ground of religious freedom. Emboldened, if you will, by the more conservative bent of the federal government at the time, eight states also passed laws allowing religiously affiliated child placement agencies to turn away prospective parents based on religious affinity or lifestyle even Mm -hmm. when those agencies received public funding
1: yeah yeah taxpayer dollars hard at work (laughs) this is of course not an exhaustive list of policies by which the trump administration earned the strong allegiance of evangelical voters Um, But we think that it is enough to demonstrate that the church, church, threw their full weight behind Donald Trump because he made good on his promises to put America back on a path toward the characteristics that they so valued, whiteness or Eurocentrism and religious conservatism. And that's why we believe we still see that group of people flocking to Trump or to the other politicians who have made themselves the mirror image of him because they reflect evangelicals' hope that America may one day return to God and become a blessed nation again. Although, at which point we were a blessed nation, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. Um, and, And that's also, I think, why they were so unable to accept Trump's defeat by a Democratic candidate. How possibly, when we were finally on the narrow path again, could God allow us to be driven off course? There must have been something nefarious afoot. There must have been some intervention in some way, uh, but that, of course, is a conversation for another day, because
0: yeah, we're we've running out of time. But ah, oh, my goodness! <laughs> Whenever you don't get your way, it's clearly due to foul play. Anyway, quickly, or
1: a spiritual, spiritual attack. attack.
0: America has been under spiritual attack for ever although one of the coolest series of books that i read growing up i think it was by frank peretti and i think mm-hmm. it was like this present darkness and into the darkness and yeah it's so cool. Were cool it describes angels fighting demons cool. and kind of like what the sort of like spiritual warfare was about i i think they were still yeah. really, like even if you're not a christian they're a very enjoyable series of books um yeah but, but i digress Uh, So before we wrap this series, we did want to address our listeners concern that the social perspectives of Christians in the era of Trump had changed significantly, reflecting a belief in conspiracies or a shift to more aggressive tactics. And this is really hard to gauge overall. So we took a look at three big social narratives that we could compare pre and post Trump, social or racial justice, immigration, and pandemic response. But these are far from apples to apples comparisons, so we're not using them as quote-unquote proof. We're just trying to get a picture of what, if anything, hit different this time around.
1: Yeah. Okay, so let's talk race relations. When Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor were killed in the spring and summer of 2020, the streets of most U.S. cities were flooded with protesters. Most were peaceful some were not. And many of us felt like the response that we saw from evangelical Christians during that time showed more care for private property and the idea of law and order than it did for the lives being lost because of racial or police violence. And of course, we saw our Christian friends and neighbors applauding and sharing President Trump's responses, many of which felt cold or calloused and sometimes outright racist. So what can we compare this to? The best comparison we could think to draw on was the summer of 1991, when the beating of Rodney King by four police officers was caught on camera and televised, and then the officers were acquitted of all criminal charges. Riots overwhelmed Los Angeles and the city burned for weeks. Thousands of people lost their lives and property in that summer. So how did evangelicals respond in that context? Well, First things first, we did not have the luxury of recording all of our opinions in very public places for our friends and enemies alike to dissect. Luxury
0: in air quotes, I
1: think. (laughs) Exactly. Like, we can't go back and see what people were saying on Facebook about Rodney King. So it's really hard to say how individuals reacted in the moment. We don't even have blogs to draw from here. But we do know that evangelical organizations like James Dobson's Focus on the Family were weighing in on the matter via their publishing channels, the the best tools that they had available to them. In 1993, Focus on the Family actually published a book by Robert Vernon, who was the assistant chief of police at the Los Angeles Police Department, which uh, laid the blame for crime and lawlessness on the loss of Christian family values. (laughs) Rather than discussing violence against Uh, the violence against Rodney King that led to the riots or the distrust of the black community in Los Angeles for the police department, uh, Vernon made the case that a lack of values allowed the riots to occur. The issue was not the violence that caused the riots. The issue was the riots themselves. Another well-known pastor at the time, John MacArthur, warned of the consequences of resistance to the authority of law enforcement, saying, These people are not just opposing the police. They're opposing God. Almighty holy God. And turns out that there's also a lot to untangle about the relationship of conservative Christians to law enforcement. Um, but yeah, so this this response tracks with what we saw in 2020. The issue is not the violence that caused the riots, the issue is not the, the problem that caused the protest, that's yeah. individual. The issue is the corporate rioting, the corporate protests, and the uh, abandonment of respect for private property.
0: There's a unique political, uh, social manipulation that goes on in moments like the Rodney King right and what we're seeing right now with the leaking of the Supreme Court draft opinion. A parallel that I see, at least, is that the actual problem, at least that, that most of society is concerned about, is the beating of Rodney King or the content of the Supreme Court draft opinion that was leaked. But the focus that is being, you know, forced to, the the thing that that certain actors in the political realm are trying to push the focus towards is on the riots or the fact that the Supreme Court document was leaked. Mm -hmm. And those are not the problems. They are symptoms caused by an underlying problem but they are not the problem themselves right and you you see this shift of focusing on the symptom and not the sickness um and i think it's because it's politically expedient because it makes certain groups look bad if you spin it hard enough Um, right it's just an interesting parallel that came to me while you're talking about that let's Let's keep moving. Let's take a look at immigration next. Um, We know that there was a disconnect in the evangelical community during the Trump era. Organizations and leaders took positions that called for the United States to find a way to care for immigrants in accordance with biblical principles. Voters supported Trump's aggressive restriction and deportation policies. So the organizations are saying, let's take care of these people. The people are saying uh no <laughs> let's uh nah. send them back to where they came from like ohio for a lot of these people um so how did this line up with right. with previous periods of heightened attention around immigration it turns out this hostility towards immigrants is a relatively new development Before the 1990s, evangelical Christians were active in welcoming immigrants and refugees, working to help them settle in and access services. Many even participated in a large-scale legalization effort for undocumented immigrants in cooperation with the Justice Department's Immigration and Naturalization Service. Evangelical churches across the country helped legalize thousands of undocumented immigrants during the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act's legalization program. That law was signed by Ronald Reagan, and it allowed the opportunity for nearly 3 million undocumented immigrants to become permanent residents evangelical churches provided facilities and volunteers to help interested individuals determine their eligibility and process their applications for citizenship. Nearly all of the major evangelical denominations and organizations were involved, either independently or by participating in the Evangelical Task Force, which is a crazy name, the Evangelical Task Force on Legalization run by World Relief, an evangelical relief and resettlement organization. (laughs) There seems to be no evidence either that there was a widespread resentment or discontent with these immigrants becoming Americans. Now, that sort of mentality has always existed in America. It's sort of the root of they're coming to steal our gerbs and the, Mm -hmm. the, the... Immigrants are bad mentality generally, but that's usually felt by a much smaller, much, Mm -hmm. much, much less popular subsection of the of the population at large, not by a massive chunk of one of the foundational groups. I'm not going to say the foundation of America, but certainly a group that's large enough to form like one of the foundational blocks of American culture.
1: Yeah. And so, so here's what happened. Here's the catch though. Uh, all of that work that they did under Reagan in the eighties was all legal. It was a part of a, a, a distinct initiative. We know that evangelical voters strongly believe in the rule of law and that often that line is the breaking point between their theology and their politics. And as the legal distinction between lawful and unlawful immigrants grew, so did evangelicals hostility to those they saw as breaking the rules. Um, And this is this kind of like we were just talking about in the the racial justice section. It's less about the issue and more Mm -hmm. about the rules. And are you are you following the rules? Are you doing the right thing? So um, in the 1990s, both Democrats and Republicans became increasingly restrictionist in their immigration perspectives. In 1994, California's Republican governor Pete Wilson signaled a shift in the GOP with his support for Proposition 187, which was a ballot initiative that would have restricted undocumented immigrants access to government services like non-emergency health care and public education. Um, That particular proposition was later found unconstitutional by a federal district court. Um, But that that rhetoric that emphasized a get-tough approach toward immigrants became a part of the Republican Party's platform then in 1996, which was the same year that Bill Clinton signed a welfare reform act that denied most benefits, including food stamps and supplemental security income to even lawful immigrants. As the the restrictionist voices in the Republican Party grew louder, evangelical voters then fell in step. So by the mid-2000s, their concern for the rule of law started to permeate their discussions on immigration. And terms like legal and illegal have taken the forefront since then. But again, while we did see that Trump appealed to this message very, very heavily, we can't exactly blame him for the escalation here either. He just rode that wave well.
0: And finally, let's look at the pandemic response or pandemic response among groups, right? This one is the hardest to tease out honestly because the last real pandemic that we had like to reference was the 1918 <laughs> flu. Not West Nile, not the Zika virus, those were no nothing. No. Not SARS. This is the OG, right? But here's what we know. In 1918 and in 2020, state and local mandates required masks and closed churches of all kinds. In 1918, we know that there were many individuals who significantly disliked wearing their masks and made their feelings known but it didn't seem to be a hallmark of the religious conservatives. And for the most part, churches in 1918 were highly compliant when asked to close. Some chose to hold service outside, making the case that attending service was beneficial to public morale, and others converted their buildings into makeshift care centers. There was a prevailing attitude that this effort was for the public good. In 2020, we saw all kinds of protests over mask mandates and church closures, claiming that they were forms of religious discrimination or a a violation of the First Amendment right to practice religion. Again, it's that idea that Christians in America are highly persecuted, and it reflects this anti-establishment mentality that we see growing in the evangelical community. I heard it said. I'm sure Robin heard it said multiple times. The problem is the mandate, not the mask. I don't mind wearing the mask. I just hate being told to do it. Which is exactly some groups found ways to justify their brote- protest, protest, bruh, um, to justify their protest against closures and mandates using their religion. Um, but many of those were, uh, shall we say, a stretch <laughs> to say the least. But like. It also overlooks the fact that it wasn't just Christian religious institutions that were being asked to shut down. It was synagogues. It was, um, why can I not think right. of anything else off the top of my head right now? I want to say morgues, but that's not where you go to worship.
1: You are thinking mosques. mosques.
0: Thank you. Wow. Very tired.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it was. And Christian synagogues science reading rooms. Mosques
0: and Christian science reading rooms. And probably satanic temples. They were all supposed to shut down, um, or they were all asked to in in, in various forms, because it was dangerous to the public.
1: Yes. Yeah. Again, it's like a lot of this response that we're seeing from from evangelicals in these situations has nothing to do with their yeah. Christianity and has everything to do with this political undercurrent that also overlays on top of their religious identity. And that's what this yeah. response was. And and none of this, like, this isn't something that we can chalk up to Trump directly. Did he galvanize this base and give them a bullhorn to amplify their thoughts? Absolutely. But like we've seen over and over in this series and on this show in general, very rarely does one spark alone cause a blaze. What we saw in evangelicals' pandemic response, in their support of Trump, and in this tension between the far right and, well, everyone, is the culmination of perhaps hundreds of years since the founding of the United States, of overlapping events. And that is how we got here. That is how... The evangelical church has just become so entangled in Donald Trump, even though it makes absolutely no sense.
0: It's unfortunately, there's nothing, or rather, I guess, fortunately, this is actually a positive thing. There's nothing inherently magical or compelling or bewitching about Trump. He's not the antichrist or the second coming of Christ or whatever you want. He's just a man that happened to be in the right place to take advantage of a a confluence of events of an unholy convergence, if you will. There it is, the title in the show. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh.
1: Bam, bam, bam. It's like almost, we planned almost.
0: it. Um and you know maybe Trump has something unique that allowed him to to see that, or in my opinion, more likely he lacked something that is common in most of humanity <laughs> that would have told them to not take advantage in the ways that he did and and manipulate in the ways that he does. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not about Trump. And it's never been about Trump, and it will never be about Trump. Trump is just a symbol. And all he does is allow these people who are trying to process several very, very difficult concepts, like the, the, the feeling of losing your hard-earned position in society, the fear of losing everything that you've worked for, the changing world around you, moving faster than you're comfortable with, than you can adjust, all of these things, mm-hmm. the, the growing connection between me and you and a person on the other side of the globe and the shrinking barriers between distinct religious groups or cultural identities as we all are able to communicate through things like the internet, through shared cultural portals like Netflix and, and, and other movies um, and, and streaming services, right? The world is shrinking. In a lot of ways, and that creates a very uncomfortable environment for people who who derived their sense of security and well-being from tradition, from these mm-hmm. values that are supposed to be bedrock. So while I wish I could say that, you know, we have fully answered the question that we are asked, I feel like <laughs> all we have done here is sort of identify mostly what it wasn't you know it wasn't really Trump
1: yeah it wasn't magic there was no magic in him Um, which is like you said a good thing but also at the same time a terrifying thing Uh, because I think a lot of people leading up to this election had this idea that if they got rid of Trump they could get rid of Trumpism they could get rid of this particular um overlay of white nationalism and Christian nationalism and uh and i think that this has proved at least to me that you can't we can't hang our hat on getting rid of trump to solve this problem we have to start to unpack what it means to have this whole entire cultural block of people who are afraid of these specific things and and just like all the rest of us have our own fears how are we going to work together to address everyone's concerns so that we can create a place that's welcoming for Every American, uh, rather than try to fight for dominance over the cultural narrative,
0: hmm. you know yeah. what?
1: But if you would like to,
0: uh, I was just going to say, I know a place that's welcoming to all Americans. Oh, that's probably nicer. Way way actually, probably way better.
1: <laughs> Either way. Either way, whichever, you know, whether you're welcoming or, or you know, dominating, uh, you are welcome to send us an email. <laughs> That's the whole point of this conversation. You can visit firesidebreakdowns.com and there you will find every episode and you will find our show notes with all of our sources so you can look them up yourself. You will find a link to a contact page on which you can send us a handy dandy note. Tell us all the things you think and feel bonus points if you send us sources as well. And then you'll also find a link to our social accounts and our Patreon um, where Savannah has been working hard to uh, to keep our patrons up to date and take that responsibility off of us was probably a lot better there uh, now that she's managing it than when we were trying to manage it. And so if you like what we do here, you can contribute on a monthly basis or on a one time basis to help us continue to do that that work
0: or leave us a review. Please.
1: Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. You can do that in so many places now. We used to have to add the disclaimer that if you listen on Spotify, we'd settle for a, a Facebook review. But now you can leave us stars and reviews directly on Spotify or Apple or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts, really. And that is probably the most impactful thing that you can do for us because that lets other people know that what we do here is valuable and that is worth listening to. So we'd highly appreciate it
0: so you know what else goodness, we appreciate good news right. i got it i'm gonna start news. this good news with a little bad news though so <laughs> i swear we'll get to good Damn news. It. so as some of our listeners may be aware and as all of you are about to be aware anti-asian hate crimes have been on the rise over the course of the past couple of years can't imagine why it probably has nothing to do with somebody screaming china virus off the top of his lungs for months on end We're now in the middle of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and here's the good news. A couple of days ago, on May 15th, New York City held the first annual Asian American and Pacific Islander Cultural and Heritage Parade. New York City is home to the second largest Asian American and Pacific Islander population in the United States. And in the midst of this misdirected anger being pointed at our citizens, our fellow Americans of Asian and Pacific Islander heritage, Mm -hmm. we think the celebration and recognition of the many ways that they have enriched America was both sorely needed and long overdue. And I want to close this episode uh, and this series really with a quote from John Park, founder of the Korean American Community Empowerment Council. And he said, when I first came to New York City, working as a peddler in Manhattan, I remember being amazed at the Puerto Rican Day Parade, the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and the Columbus Day Parade. I never dreamed I would one day lead Korean New Yorkers down 6th Avenue for the first Asian Pacific American Heritage Parade. And it's a simple quote. But to me, it is profound. America is still the land of opportunity. It's still a place where you can grow up and achieve your wildest dream. You can It can feel impossible, and it can seem like the only thing that you're able to think of is dark thoughts, and especially in this time of division and fighting. But the light is still there. For those who want to find it, it is still there. So when the evil and terrible things in this world threaten to overwhelm you, we offer these words of encouragement. Keep looking. The light is there. And until next week, take care of each other.